This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Mike Sussman, writer and producer of Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Floyd Dorsey, and I'm joined by Trek FM Hall of Famer, Brandon Shea Matala. Brandon, how's it going? Hall of Famer? What the heck am I famous for? Yeah, man, you have stepped up. You started out as you were just a crewman on the side. You had a cot, you know, and then we got you a, we kind of got you a side station. Now we moved you to a bridge crew. Then, I don't know if you noticed, but you were an all-star a couple of episodes ago, and now I had to step you up to Hall of Fame, man. You've been promoted. Well, the way you started it, it sounds like a plague or something. You, know, you, <laughs> you just came on and you just infested the show. <laughs> That's funny. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You're, but hey, man, I, I'm just keep like we've been doing this for a year you know and that's kind of how it went it just kind of rolled along and we were we were getting going and boom man uh you have jumped out there you've been on all these other shows on trek fm you're a your co-host of the edge and you uh, had melodic treks going which i um, finally finished everybody i finally got that <laughs> right. last episode out <laughs> yes yes <laughs> And I mean, you're just, you're just everywhere all over Trek FM. So I've got to say, you must be a hall of famer, you know? Yes. I, uh, well, I did at church last week, uh, they, they had the Christmas special and they did, our kids were in the Christmas play and afterwards they had, uh, a, a potluck and before the potluck, they had a pie eating contest and I actually won the pie eating contest. So I, yes. I have a medal upstairs. My kids were thrilled and they were running around and telling everybody that I ate the pie faster than everybody else. Represent Trek FM and Mort five. Very good. All right. Very good. So boomers for, uh, this episode, we have got a treat for you. The season three episode damage is arguably considered one of the best episodes of season three. And some even would say it's one of the best of the series. I've even heard people say that this is some of the best star Trek overall. Well, tonight we are not only going to discuss damage, we're going to discuss it with the person who wrote it. That's right. Boomers. We are welcoming back Phyllis strong to warp five. What do you think about that? Brandon? I love it. I'm so excited. We had Phyllis Strong on a few months ago. It was, you know, six or seven months ago, and we, we kind of d- did a, a brief touch of her 
of her career in general. We talked a little bit about everything. But at the end, we said, Phyllis, we'd love to have you on when we talk about damage. And she said, yeah, for sure. And and uh, well, here we are. We just covered it last week in, or two weeks ago in our, our Season 3 Retrospective Part 5. And, and now that we've done that, we wanted to do a little bit more of a deep dive into this episode because it is such an important episode in the season. And it really is a game changer and has some serious ramifications for Archer in season four so it's important and it's it's because it is a favorite and because it is such an important episode we really wanted to take some time and really talk about it and who better than the person that wrote it right oh yes it's such an opportunity to be able to talk actually talk to the 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 person the fan the person who actually like they she thought of this she put it all together um it's just just awesome i mean it's it's just a once in a lifetime opportunity definitely for a star trek fan i think so, uh, boomers, uh, we'll be bringing Phyllis on in here in just a moment, but just to let you know that we have an announcement regarding the show, um, coming up at the end of the show after, after the interview and after our closing information, be sure to stick around for an, an, an announcement about the show. On board the NX-01 to discuss Damage, one of the best and most loved episodes of the series, Brennan and I are very happy to welcome back executive story editor and writer of Damage, among many other episodes of Enterprise, Phyllis Strong. Welcome back to Warp 5, Phyllis. Thank you so much. Actually, just to point out, I was a co-producer producer by this point. Oh, so, okay. not that that makes any difference <laughs> in the world, but... Uh, I'll, I'll take the higher, the higher title, oh, okay. um, at least at that point. Uh, not Again, not that it matters, and it was a long time ago. Right. Um, but ju- I just bring that up because you know, it was, I was both really in the mix on this one, and uh, especially the core of this episode, the idea of what you have to sacrifice, how, what, how far will a good person go, where do you cross the line, and how do you choose to was a theme and an issue that uh, I've really been interested in uh, for a long, long time, for most of my uh, writing life, if not beforehand. Very good. Excellent. Well, there's a there's a couple of points in this. Before we get to Archer's decision in this episode, um, there was a lot of changes to the overall arc for Season 3 with this episode. And in Damage, we saw the female Sphere Builder for the first time, and T'Pol had her Trellium D addiction revealed. So when you're writing an episode like this, what direction did you have when writing this? And when this was assigned to you, when the script was assigned to you, were there plot points that you were told to incorporate in the story, or were these all your own additions? These were all my own additions, actually. I really pitched this. Uh, the, the, only, uh, the only part that sort of uh, fit with this was in the larger conversations, we were talking about what would happen uh, to the Enterprise within this uh, fight with the Zindi and going to Azadi Prime. And if I recall, I pitched the idea that we would be severely, severely damaged. It's possible that that was already up there, um, but really I wanted to sort of take a step. I, I really pitched the episode that would examine what would happen uh, uh, damage-wise on many levels. And uh, even though we had uh, referenced and started and planted to Paul's addiction with Trellium D, you know, uh, 
early on, uh, starting with Impulse and, and even in previous season with her interest in uh, being able to experiment with her emotions, uh, that didn't necessarily have to happen here. But to me, it was such a thematic part of the overall idea of damage. I really wanted to explore on all levels our damaged crew from the uh, from really the start of the season from the Zindi attack and what it was doing to us. Um, and so it would echo back. So to Paul's damage here, her addiction was really to me part of the same overall story that uh, that took into account the ship, everybody on it, and Archer's uh, sense of right and wrong, or not sense of right and wrong, as much as uh, the the practical damage to a good person who wants to do good. Mm-hmm. So talking about T'Pol and the Trellium D addiction, was there any influence in your life or events in your life that you drew on to write this aspect of T'Pol's story? Because it's very similar to, I mean, it's it's blatantly like it's a drug addiction for a, for a main character on our show. Yes, and it was, it, it certainly was something that, uh, once again, didn't happen. It, it did happen maybe more metaphorically in the other Star Treks, actually. It, it did get addressed, but not really so much on the Vulcan emotional level, and it, as much for one of our main characters. Uh, I wouldn't say, because it wouldn't be true that I drew on my own drug addiction since I didn't have one. Um, but it's, it, I certainly understand the pull. Uh, I, I have been known to be a workaholic. I have no, and I have, but I, I, I will laughingly call an addictive personality. I think at the time I was addicted to diet Coke and various other things. And I tended to either go whole hog into something or stay out of it. So I certainly understood the psychology, um, and also the pull of, want the pull of wanting to explore something that you knew was probably bad for you but you were so intrigued by i'd say the the other aspect that i took from my own uh sensibility uh my own personality is that belief that you can actually control things that you can as she said you know i thought in small trace amounts i could just use it to kind of juice uh the feeling without necessarily getting caught up in it. So uh, I definitely uh, could relate to thinking that you can, that even if everyone else has trouble sort of handling everything, that I could, let's say in my life, juggle everything and make it work, that I could juggle uh, personal, social, academic, work, etc., cetera, um, and uh, not give myself sort of any break, so to speak. Um, I was definitely known as sort of the energizer buddy, bunny. I definitely have, have done many things in my life where I have to pull all-nighters or you just go for it. I think on Voyager, I remember uh, writing through the night because we had to completely change an episode. Uh, and, you know, I just sort of sat there and did it. And I actually went, it was New Year's Eve, and I went to a New Year's Eve party, came back after three hours and uh, kept writing to get to get hit the January 1st deadline for a draft of the script uh, that I was doing. So uh, 
um, that kind of intensity I, ha I brought to the table and that kind of belief in being able to do what other people can't, I think uh, is true for a lot of us. See, with the, the Trillium D addiction plot line, like I personally have trouble with that plot line in this episode here, not because it's poorly written or poorly acted. It's just that I, I have a tough time believing that a Vulcan would experiment with something like this when she saw the negative reactions or the negative effects that it had on other Vulcans back in impulse, you know, but I also understand that no one would ever choose to become a drug addict, right? Yes, I definitely not choose to. And I also think one of the important things here is to remember that we are a hundred years before Kirk and Spock and the, you know, a hundred years closer to, uh, you know, the, the Vulcans, we're pretty far, but from the Vulcans and all our yesterdays that come from the savage part and the, the savage history that, of the previous one. And also, I'd say that Enterprise really ascribed to the belief that Vulcans were, had emotions but could repress them and even had to work at it to some degree, which may have, which differed possibly a little from at least what was on the surface in the original series and uh, in Next Gen um, and the ones before it. And again, remember that Next Gen is 200 years later. So the idea is that they keep evolving. So we're, we're slightly in a different Vulcan uh, universe in this. Yeah, and you're also you're thinking about it. Um, this is before they recovered the teachings of Surak in season four. So they, I mean, she's kind of lost, you know, it would, I think, I guess it would be harder for me to accept it if it had been after they found the teachings and we're getting back on that path of enlightenment or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I also think you need to go back to fusion to, uh, I think we called it fusion by the end, the basic, the mind melding episode yes. uh, in the previous season, which was a bit of a violation. And, and basically it's a little bit like somebody being introduced to drugs, not of their own volition right. and, and being uh, not just tempted by it, but, you know, never would have otherwise. But I, I also think, at least in my conception of T'Pol, um, that she is a Vulcan, but she's not the representative of the entire Vulcan race. Right. And uh, remember she has chosen, she is, she lived on Earth. She was the consulate there. She is the Vulcan on a human ship, a human plus flocks ship, um, but primarily human ship. There are many indications that he, that despite her protestations, humans fascinate her. Um, so a combination of who she was uh, as a personality and her continued presence and learning and interaction with our human crew and again, it's 200 years before next gen, we have a more emotional, avail emotionally available and out there and conflictual human crew. Um, it, it, I think it's a little bit like when you're out of your environment and you're in, in some other environment, um, you know, maybe I'll use my own, a girl hanging out with the guys, a woman who is working, you know, in, in, a, in a boys club, so to speak, you start to sort of think more of the boys stuff is kind of normal. Um, and, and you kind of gravitate toward even, even if you were 
not the tomboy growing up. And even if you uh, were really frat boyish in, in, you know, in college or something. So I think for all of these reasons, to Paul individually as a personality uh, was more susceptible to that and had, you know, just filtered the Vulcan scientific curiosity through this prism of uh, being forcibly mind melded with, again, at a time when mind melding was thought of as dirty and not done because these emotions, you didn't even want to feel them. And again, her background. So that's my very long, psychologically grounded answer for why uh, <laughs> I would believe that that uh, Paul could become uh, addicted to Trillium D. Plus, later in season five, Brandon, Phyllis was going to write an episode <laughs> arc that revealed that T'Pol's father was actually Romulan. So... <laughs> that, that that would have answered some things for us, you know. <laughs> exactly, um, but I mean, she is a fascinating character, and uh, you know, Jolene Blaylock was evolving as an actress and really the custodian of this character as we went along. And if you just look at the differences between her in season one and season three, oh, man, it's huge. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, and you know, not that. Once again, there were some big storylines going on in this, all of which were on the theme of damage. So it wasn't the T'Pol addiction episode, but for her to carry this, and, and by the way, as an aside, I had great fun uh, with the um, uh, sort of the fantasy sequences, her, her trippy sequences, so to speak. Um, and she just handled all of it like, like a champion. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to the shower scene? Both. I'm referring to the shower scene, yes. Trippy, yeah. Okay. I'm referring to the shower scene, and okay. and I do remember that the uh, as an aside, uh, when production got the episode, and they were very good about it, but they were like saying, "Oh my god, you know, a, a shower scene," and it wasn't, "Oh my god, we're doing a shower scene, and how are we going to organize this?" It was much more, "We've got to rig up this." <laughs> You know, this proppy set, because, you know, it's not going to be attached to actual a shower. We have to figure out how to run a pipe up there and how to, you know, make it go when we need to make it go and have the bath part of it. I mean, it was all built and up there. It was it was an incredible production to get this, you know, shower, you know, on the set done. Um, so it, it, it was, it was one, it, if you're always asking what's going to take the time, what's going to cost, you know, when, you know the, the old thing about you never want to be working on the water. And of course, of course, James Cameron blew that up with Titanic. Well, this was our version of a little bit of Titanic. <laughs> All for that. Awesome. Yeah. So like in hindsight now, like we, we going through this season rewatch, you know, and analyzing it as much as we have been. So in my head canon now, I've used an example of Floyd. You're going to have to help me with the character's name in the episode, but the one where that um, Mako starts getting the neural pressure from Trip, right? And then um, at the end of the episode, Harbinger. To Har- is it Harbinger? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then uh, what's the what's the Mako's name? I can't Manicole. remember her name. Cole. Amanda Cole. Yeah. So in the end, <laughs> end of that episode, T'Pol basically throws herself on Trip, and so I've kind of used that as an explanation of the 
trillium D addiction is starting to surface a bit more at that time. I, th- I think it was it was running under, and once again, I think you can you can trace things back to uh, to fusion and the you know the forcible mind meld and to her. And there's there's always been you know even from the beginning uh, this kind of uh, to whatever extent you can have a flirtation between a human and a, and a Vulcan like Paul, you had a bit of that with Trip and Paul. I mean there was it, it kind of goes from you know sort of siblingish to something moreish, but it, it was always a little bit there, even though it was never going to be consummated in any other way, but. Uh, you know, through some device like this, which wasn't, you know, completely uh, conscious. Now, before Phyllis thinks that I know all the trivia for all of Enterprise, I the only the reason I remember Amanda Cole's name is because that was the first episode I was, or second episode I was ever on Warp 5 as a guest, and I actually came up with a season five story for her. Like she was like an undercover, oh, cool. she was like an undercover agent, and that's the reason that she was so chummy with the crew so quickly. And that was like my, if she had a return for season five. So that's the reason I remember her name. <laughs> so don't, don't ask me any other. That's an awesome reason. Don't ask me any other trivia questions. It's a, <laughs> I mean, remember, remember in all of this, that uh, what was driving the Zindi storyline, it, it, it was never stated as much, but it was always uh, underneath and in, in, in everything that we were doing. It was, it was driven by nine 11. we, we're in the third month of shooting. We, you know, Enterprise as a staff started in, I don't know, May of, of 2001. And uh, we had just started shooting, I don't know, mid July. We were shooting the pilot. We just started shooting, you know, an episode in like maybe August, you know, and September 11th comes. And, you know, this is the beginning of our Enterprise. Um, so it, it makes sense. And this is season one, obviously, but it makes sense that, that, and the world changed. So it made sense that it, it started filtering in so that the Zindi storyline, seven million dead terrorist attack, you know, it, 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 it was a clear outgrowth of that. And, and once again, I want to point out how much any Star Trek series is a good, bad or indifferent reflection. I say good of its time. So we have the original series. We have uh, we have Next Gen, which was really in a much more prosperous and uh, you know undivided time. Uh, we have Enterprise being affected by 9/11, and we have Discovery today being affected by just about everything. And I, I will point out that Damage is uh, is sort of a perfect fit with sort of what, what at least I can see as Discovery's ethos at the moment. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you near the end, I was going to bring it up to you because the the Discovery episode, Lethe, you know, really continues on with that trend of the Vulcans who are, you know, they really feel that they're superior to humans and they don't want to be tainted by humans. And I, I personally love that. And seeing it brought up in Discovery really makes me question my preconceptions to Vulcans based solely on Spock and Tuvok, basically. that That's really all we know. So I think that's awesome that they've decided to continue on with that aspect of the Vulcans. And again, continue on with this idea that, you know, wartime makes 
strange bedfellows and has incredible stresses on uh, on morality or what you consider morality and, and what you have to give up for the greater good. I mean, it's not quite the good of the many uh, outweighs the good of the one, but it's a version of that where the greater good outweighs some questionable and maybe even morally repugnant um, tactics along the way. One of the historical and uh, historical events that I brought up, I believe at the time we were talking about damage, but has always been a story that fascinated me is the one of Coventry in England. Do you know this story? I don't know. Well, uh, in World War II, you may remember that uh, the Allies had finally, um, look at imitation game, had finally broken the Enigma code uh, for, uh, uh, for, the, for the Nazis. And so we finally knew what they were doing. Um, but if the Germans, if the Nazis knew that we knew, they might change the code or they may al might alter things so that D-Day would not be able to happen, happen in the way we wanted it. So uh, the U.S., uh, the Allied forces could not let any hint that they knew uh, what uh, any of the Nazi plans before D-Day happened. Um, forgive me, I don't remember the exact timing, but anyway, they found out, the Allies found out that there was going to be a bombing run uh, into England over the town of Coventry. And they had to make a decision. Do they warn the people of Coventry and uh, betray the fact that they know what the Nazi code is and possibly put uh, Operation Overlord or D-Day into jeopardy, or do they hold their tongues and let many people die in a bombing attack? Guess what they did? Yeah, well, I think it's a it's not an easy choice, but I'm guessing that they decided to let the town die. They let the town die. That is correct. Wow. And Coventry has become a catchphrase for having to do something you hate to do having to sacrifice innocent lives to save more innocent lives and, and win the big battle later. So that call that. So that was the, so they call that like collateral damage, like Coventry would be collateral damage in order to set up. Coventry is Coventry is it, it, it's a little, it's not quite collateral damage. Collateral damage is when you're going for an objective, you're going to Vietnam and you're, you're, you want to take out something mm -hmm. uh, like, it's when the Nazis put, uh, you know, all of their weapons in the middle of a church and the middle of a town right. and to get them out. Okay. You need to do collateral damage here. It is a version of it, but it is even more because it's just innocence. You know, that's it. Right. Um, you are preserving something, but you don't even know. Think about the uh, what was going to people's minds when, you know, something else could have uh, betrayed the fact that the allies knew that the Nazis were, that they knew the Nazi code. So, you know, that was almost, that was almost more of a gamble. Right. So it, it's a real, it's a moral dilemma. And what I think Star Trek at its best explores uh, are moral dilemmas. So it seems like the season is like coming, like kind of hitting a crescendo here because this is like as bad as it can get as the, as the episode's ending, 
the ship is just getting hammered, 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 and it's going on. So, um, how far in advance did you know that this is the story that you wanted to tell at this point in the season? And how did you decide that you were going to have Archer commit one of the darkest deeds we've ever seen a Star Trek captain perform? I wish I could remember exactly. It, it wasn't at the beginning. I would say it was probably um, probably in the, the second quarter, so to speak. Um, you know, not after the first initial episodes where it was the reaction to the Zindi and, and going on that and, uh, you know, all the little steps of trying to figure out why they did what they did. Um, as it was building that there was going to be more of a uh, sort of future Daniels kind of component in all of this as it got bigger. So I can't remember. I, my, my guess would be about uh, sometime maybe a bit after impulse, um, sometime when we weren't so much in the little standalone ones and we really started to pick up the serialized, mm -hmm. uh, I'd say probably came up with this four months in, let's okay. say. So, you know, I do remember because this was written, um, we were, we would write from, you know, like May or June into where we started the season uh, into like February, uh, and, and finish up with post. And this one, I probably pitched around October, November. Okay. So I, it was always, but it was something I was thinking about as we got deeper into the Zindi storyline. And we, we always knew that it was going to have some really big, you know, repercussions and, you know, we were going for something bigger, but especially as it started to be Hey, the Zindi have this idea. They want to. They want to destroy us because they're afraid they're going to be destroyed. And as it got to be a bigger, bigger thing, right. um, that's when I was pitching it. What was I? I was what was uh, probably given to me um, or worked out. Or we worked out in the room uh, was the fact that uh, they would be going for a rendezvous. Uh, to figure out how to stop the Zindi, get stop the weapon, etc. The whole Degra thing and the whole, um, uh, you know, little code. The whole the fact of the rendezvous, which was the thing that drove Archer's desperation, was something that was planned out. Was going to happen anyway. Right. But this was just the way that we. Uh, this is how it, it came to be within this story. But I don't think I pitched that. Okay, and then having Archer go really dark. I mean, even in the episode when he's sitting in his cabin and Phlox comes in with Porthos, Archer's literally oh, sitting in the dark. That is such an awesome <laughs> scene. And that exchange with him and Phlox is amazing. Like it's amazing. And this is why Phlox is one of my favorite characters is because he's there for the comedy but he's there as a moral compass for people because he's experienced so much. And this scene just highlights not only how great an actor Bakula is, but, you know, um, oh, I'm trying to blank on his name here. The Dr. Fox here. Uh, oh, Billingsley. Uh, John Billingsley? Goodness, how Billingsley, yeah. is, like, how great an actor he is as well. Like this, this scene is like one of the best scenes in the series, I think. Well, they, they had a wonderful chemistry these two actors had a wonderful chemistry 
real sense of respect. And they both brought a lot of, they were the pros. I mean, not that it, others were, you know, were a little more green coming forward, et cetera. But these guys were the pros. And when you put them together uh, in any episode, you had that combination of wry good humor and uh, deep wisdom and uh, sparring, whatever you needed. There were so many layers to what you got. Well, I even look at that like I, I, I was watching it last night and I'm, I was looking at it and I was trying to remember because it's been it's been a like it's probably been about a year since I watched this episode and I, I usually do a rewatch about every year and I couldn't remember exactly what Flox was going to say. Like I couldn't remember exactly, but I was re- thinking what I know what McCoy would probably say, you know, to Kirk and that, and yeah. I was looking at that. And when he told him, you know, that yes, he's, he's done it for some reason. I knew that he had done it twice. I, I just remembered, I knew what he was going to say twice that he had, he had done something unethical. And then when Archer told him that there are going to be more casualties and I was like waiting. I was like, I know what McCoy would probably say. I can't remember what Flock says here. <laughs> and then when Flock when Flock says, uh, you know, I'll be ready. Oh man, that's that was like okay. I mean, Flock's is he's always been there to be that that mirror for Archer. But then he's also there for Archer and the, for the crew. So that was just great. Yes. I I I mean, you're making me remember that my. My, my driving passion in this was to push all of our characters to live it, really get them farther than they, than they'd gone, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, an emotional decision. And again, the ma- however you think of the Trellium D, the fact that it was coming out here to really push, uh, to Paul to that oh, point, yeah. I mean, everybody is pushed to their max and, you know, it, it was dark and I, I don't think I would have been as pushing it as hard if we weren't in something like a Zindi, you know, uh, year and storyline. Um, not that it wouldn't have fit, but you wouldn't have had all of the circumstances. There were so many times, so many discussions of, you know, how do you, uh, push them to the nth degree? What all has to happen? It can't just be that you need the work, you know, can't just be this. There's got to be so many can't turn back moments, you know, right. in this, and such a sense that so many people would die otherwise. The real Coventry thing. There really had to be a sense that all was lost. I mean, we don't just need the yeah. work core. We, we need the didn't. work core because it's going to save the earth. <laughs> you know? We need the work core because we've just we made this huge gamble in Azadi Prime uh, to try to, you know, while Archer's getting tortured, to try to turn Degra. To you know, bring that artifact to use what Daniels gave him, um, and doesn't even know if it'll work. And then to have them discover that you know this this little that there's a code and a clue in the pod that sent him that they figure out, and that's and then they find the embedded coordinates. I mean, all of the gambling of how it, you know, the only way was to change the sort of Oppenheimer's character. Dagger was an Oppenheimer. His mind. So all of this, you know, we're talking, we're talking the future of the universe, if you believe Daniels and, and all this other stuff. Right. So I mean, everything was hinging on that. Um, if anything, I think I do remember having watched it again last night. 
Um, the one thing that uh, bothered me a little, um, and it's just because of the constraints of our 43 or 44 minute running time, I felt as though uh, the whole Illyrian ship part, the whole, you know, actually dealing with that captain and dealing with the, how they were going to uh, take out uh, the warp drive, that whole thing, it felt a little choppier to me than I would have liked. I don't know if we shot much more. We certainly probably, I certainly probably wrote more and could look that up. But there was a sense that that kind of was a little bit too condensed for my, my taste. Um, and I would have liked it to have breathed more. That was something I was actually going to ask you is what was your feeling about the way it was portrayed on screen, the, just the entire episode? I, I I was so happy with it. I feel so, so proud of this episode um, on so many levels. It came out, like I said, incredible in all the trippy moments, the the poignancy and the emotion uh, of, you know, whether it's Archer to Paul um, and, or Trip or Phlox and, and Archer, everybody was at the top of their game and it looked incredible. Um, so I guess my only, uh, point was that I wish there were, I wish there had been time for more. I wish we were on Netflix and HBO and had, you know, 52 minutes or something. Right. So at, after 13 years of hindsight, are there any changes that you would make to the actions that Archer took now that you've rewatched it again? Not to the action. If you're talking about the decision that he made or how he decided to do it, um, no, I, I don't think I would have. Um, and I think, if any, I actually was just at a, um, a screening for Aaron Sorkin's new movie, and I actually know him and was talking to him a bit, and he was saying how somebody, somebody had asked him, you know, did you want to go back and rewrite anything? And he's like, I always want to go back and rewrite it. I always want to do that. Um, so, you know, if I can put myself up there with Aaron, um, I would have, there were aspects, certain scenes where things were, well, we have to do this. They were very on the, no they were a bit on the nose of this is, this is the decision we have to make and this is what we have to do. And I would have done it a little more, um, subtly or tried to do it with a little more subtext about how that decision was being sort of wrought as opposed to just sort of pronouncing it. Um, and I would have loved uh, some more scenes with, to see really, to see Archer's struggle even more. I think that's, when I talk about maybe not having enough time in that storyline, it's really to see that, that struggle that Scott would have done so well, um, even more. Whether it was with uh, Casey Biggs' character, the, the head of the Illyrian ship, whether it was more with Flox or with, or with some of the other crew we didn't have a chance to see sort of the reaction to what the captain was saying. Uh, when he's like, you know, we're going, we're getting it. That's it. Um, you always love to see the little bits of, of human reaction, you know, even in a military setting. Mm -hmm. Well, after rewatching this episode, I tell you that that scene that we were just talking about with Floyd there, where we talking about with the, uh, with flocks and Archer, I want to know what were the two, unethical things that flocks did like wow <laughs> for flocks to do something whoof. 
That's something Dayton Ward. Well, that that was for that was for that was for season five. Right. That's, that's something that Dayton Ward uh, said. Those are feelers that you have out there. That's a story someone can write. You know, that's a story someone can tell. Exactly. That that is the the story. Well, and 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 two, you have Floss's reaction. You know, in so many episodes to the things like, uh, you know, look. Um, you could even say, even though I don't think it was that, that you could even talk about similitude and clone trip and all of that um, as things that go close to the line. You can also take Flox's reaction to, I forget, guys, help me out on which episode this was, uh, maybe Doctor's Order. I can't remember, but the one where there were the two species, they were yeah, like Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. Yeah, Doctor's Orders. And his reaction to what was happening there you know, is, is indicative of having to make a choice like that before. See, watching that scene, I had, I did immediately think of Doctor's Orders. I didn't think of Similitude. But that would honestly be very fascinating if the two things that he had to do were while he was on Enterprise. Like, oh, wow. wow. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you mentioned Similitude there. Like, if, if the two times he crossed the line were under Archer... That that would be deep, and that would be an interesting mm. thing to get some, you know, like a another letter or something like that to uh, to the doctor that he wrote to in Dear Doctor, right? Wow, well, so. I assume I assumed yeah. it happened yeah. before he came aboard, but holy cow, your Archer's a really bad influence. Then is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, maybe it's the other way around. I mean, those things happened before Archer stepped over his oh, line. Right, true. <laughs> okay, so we actually had a listener. Who we actually had several listener questions for you here, and like they were just coming in, like, man, this is the best episode, you know. And then they didn't ask a question, but you're like, thank you so much, listeners, for your comments and your your questions. Uh, but Duncan Barrett said, "Were you aware how controversial this episode would become? Like, and what were the discussions like in the writers' room going into it?" I was, in all honesty, uh, I was aware that it might be controversial, but when I pitched it, I got such support. Um, and it, again, uh, we really felt that we were a bit in this uh, morally ambiguous universe to some degree in the expanse, if you will. Um, and I, now that I recall, I might've gotten some surprise reactions, but it was such a strong story. It was such a strong uh, dilemma that uh, I think people were pretty on board with it. Uh, I, I think also there might, I think there was some concern, um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a prohibition by, by any means. And again, within the context of, of this season storyline, it was understandable. And all I remember is that I was really passionate about it. Um, so just kind of geeking out here just a little bit, the actual, the beginning of this episode shows, um, I think it's the Zindi, it's Dalem is complaining to the other Zindi about why are we allowing this ship to exist? You know, why are we allowing them a warship within our system here? And you know that they're here. Why, you know, why aren't we at least going on board this ship? Uh, and I was thinking to myself when I watched this, he's got a really good point. You know, why aren't we taking them prisoner? You know, I, and I, you know, looking at it from the point of view, you know, like a really good bad guy doesn't think they're a bad guy. 
You know, they always actually have a, they always yeah. have a really good reason to do what they're doing. You know, like the reason that they're designing this weapon to destroy earth, because they were told that earth was going to destroy them. So from their point of view, they're actually the heroes exactly. of their story. So in that, in that case, yeah. you've got the Zindi reptilian. He's like actually making a really good point here, you know? <laughs> he is. And I, and I think part of it is, is he would have, if he had free reign, but it's also like your military, you know, uh, reports to its governing body or a council and other things. And there are so many parts of this coalition that uh, don't necessarily want to use their resources to go this far. Because remember, they also have to uh, safeguard the weapons right. um, in all of this. And they and and the other thing too is uh, it didn't seem like they were so much about taking prisoners. Um, they did try it with Archer and they didn't get anything. So I think to some degree, you know, you don't necessarily, you got a lot of things to do. If you've bombed out the, the, the destroyer or or the ship, you know, in the ocean during wartime, you're not going to sit there and necessarily swoop in. You're going to let the Indianapolis just go. You know, you got other things to do. You also are not going to, if you think about it, to actually try to go in and board and get those as prisoners, you are going to you are going to take right. casualties, and that's not necessarily a smart move. If it's so damaged, let them drift and die in right. space. Well, I thought for him, he he didn't really want to take them prisoners. He just wanted to go wipe them all out just to check that box. You know, that's what I was thinking on him. Yes, um, but also, you know, to some extent, it's like let's 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 not even use the resources for that because you know when you go to engage. You may think you're coming up against a, a wounded, ally, you know, a, a really wounded or a vanquished uh, opponent or enemy, but they could have some tricks up their sleeve and they have nothing more to lose. What if they decide to suicide bomb out and right. take you with them? That makes sense. So, so, so it's, it's militarily, it probably, it, he, he might have used poor judgment in that, but enough, there would be enough. Uh, factors and, and and people arguing against him that that was right. probably I mean, he was, he why was, not you know just he let didn't them like die. that the primates and arboreals were protecting the enterprise at that point they're like we're in negotiations with them and like why are we in negotiations we should have our our boot on their head you know it, the re- reptilian right. wiped them out and let's go to earth and wipe the rest of them out and then when we get there let's wipe out every colony you know and he he didn't like he already saw the shift at the beginning of this episode. So, and I, yeah. but when I'm looking at that, the actor, I, I don't recall the actor's name that did Dollum, but he was, he'd really acted that like, kind of like he was innocently uh, confused at why are we not wiping them all out? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And he, and, and he might, might have been, or he might've been overtaken by the fat, by his own hatred True. and hostility and, and, uh, and, once again, you know, in the novelized version of this, you missed his conversation, possibly even with the supreme commander and the 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 allied forces, so to speak, who was saying, you know, no, you're being obsessed with this. If he was the if he is the leading player in his own right. story, he had his own obsessions and damages that were leading him to make some foolish right. decisions. Um. So that's 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 how I would answer it. 
So, Floyd, I'll just point out here before we move on to the next question here that the guy that, I'm pretty sure it's the guy that played Dollum here, because, again, I watched these quickly, is uh, Scott McDonald, and he actually played Tosk in Deep Space Nine's oh, wow. episode, uh, Captive wow. Pursuit. Okay. That's, oh, that's nice. Cool. I like that episode. That's the one where yeah. uh, O'Brien actually protects him? Right. That's right, yeah. Okay. I remember it vaguely, but I would have to be, if you told me it, I'd go, oh, yeah. But I can't, and I know the name Tosk, but that's that's he's about kind of the, the lizard-looking guy who was who was hunted by by the other race, and he could turn invisible, and he ended up coming through the wormhole, and O'Brien was helping him out and became friends with him and, and helped him escape at the end of the episode. Yes, yes, yes. I said there that was a there there was a, a warmth to that episode, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so another listener question that we have is uh, from Ronald Wilson. He said, "Great reversal of the episode anomaly." So how aware were you that this was going to be a mirror image for Anomaly? Uh, not so okay. much. <laughs> uh, as, 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 what, did, what does he... What, well, what he's talking about on Anomaly, anomaly is where the, uh, a pirates... It's the second episode of the third season. Right, oh, so yeah, the yeah. Pir- pirates yeah. come in and yeah. they raid the Enterprise. And now, like, I think... I think Flocks may have pointed out or someone actually verbally pointed out, maybe it was to Paul, like, do you realize that we're becoming the people that attacked us when we first got yes. here? Yes, yes, yes. It, it, uh, the reason I, the reason I answered as I did was once again, at, at the, at the level of pitching this as an idea and a uh-huh. storyline. Um, yeah, that was not on my mind uh, because they're, Basically, in terms of turning them into uh, thieves, there have been so many times in in this series and in other series where you know people have have stolen stuff right. from us, so to speak. Um, and uh, I, I I just recall that I wasn't thinking so much of flipping that on its head as as that came later in the oh hey look look who we are starting to be because just in general the idea that they would cross the line and sacrifice somebody else uh, for a greater good was, was larger than, than anomaly and larger than the pirate ship idea. I think that's, that's where I would say it, it, it was not a mirror image on, on that account. I, I appreciate that because the pirates are just doing it for themselves. That's when they were storing, they were storing yeah. their stolen goods inside the sphere. Uh, Archer is, he is justifying it. I mean, it might not be the right thing that he should have done. It's, un, you know, it might not be ethical, but he was doing it for the right reason, or at least he had the right reason, you know? I think it's the same thing as, you know, you're, you decide not to protect Coventry because uh, you're, you want to go do something else or something that is, is benefiting you, or you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to move in once they bomb it or something. And it does has nothing to do with sort of the, the larger issue, the larger strategic issue, and and you don't have any qualms about it. I think that's the big one. You know, Archer's process in this and his uh, moral struggle uh, is so completely different. If anything, it does hurt to say you know we're becoming what we what we don't want. And there's also the callback in the episode to the uh, was it from Impulse. It might have been, or maybe it was. It was another episode. Basically, when Paul throws back in his face the fact that, you know, how can you be human? Um, the callback to the I don't want to lose my humanity 
you know, while I'm trying to save humanity. That whole idea that is that you do not want to give up. You don't want to give up what makes you human or makes you uh, moral or good just to save the the structure and the trappings and and even your own lives and that kind of thing. So, um, and that is the real dilemma. And ultimately, Archer has to answer that for himself whether he really is giving up his humanity. And I would argue that here. He, he's aware of the slippery slope, but he thinks that he can stay on the right side of it. And I'll also point out something that has just occurred to me now, um, which is, uh, and it, I, I'm not even, this is one of those things where you write something, you weren't thinking about it, and then you find it and you realize it must have been sort of embedded in it and you didn't realize. Uh, Archer thinks he can stay, that this will be a one-time thing, that he'll do it just when he needs it here, and that he's not really crossed over a line where he will do anything just to be able to vanquish the Zindi uh, and protect, uh, protect Earth. Uh, and that is the same kind of uh, confidence or hubris that T'Pol thinks of when she thinks that she can handle the Trellium D. And T'Pol actually put that back to Archer when he, she said, uh, we can't try to save humanity without holding on to what makes us human. And she actually threw it up. Right. And that was the echo. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the echo of what Archer said to uh, her. earlier. He, he actually said it to her. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right, right. Yes. Yes. And that was the callback. Yep. That was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, so uh, we have one comment before we get to our last question. Uh, Larry Larry Bodian says, when Archer gets back to Earth, he is PTSDing over having to make some of the decisions that he made. And I'm thinking he should have gone back to find the Illyrians uh, and give them back their warp core. And then Tim Cooper says, first of all, what a phenomenal episode. The first thing I'm most curious about is the lack of closure with Archer's actions. I'd like to know if there was consideration given to making subsequent episodes uh, to tell the story of what happened to the Illyrian ship and crew. And if so, were there any potential plot lines being discussed? Uh, in honesty, given the locomotive train that was taking this uh, season into the big confrontation uh, with the Zindi and the council and, and all of the various races that were trying to destroy Earth. There really wasn't the luxury of the time to go out and, and, and figure out what was going on here. It was basically, uh, it would have been too meandering. Um, and you have to trust that this is I think it's a really good point about the much later PTSD because at this point, everybody is just on their forward trajectory. We did what we had to do and we now have to win World War II. We now have to win whatever, whatever, you know, great war we're doing. And, you know, it, it's, it would almost be indulgent uh, for the individual to uh, try to assuage his conscience over what, what he had to do to win that war. Later, he can be tortured by it. Later, he might try to find right. out about it. Um, and in, in all, I always thought that, uh, I think it's Flock said in the episode, uh, it'll be, you know, it'll be tough, but they'll, or maybe Archer said that, you know, it'll be tough, but they'll make right. it, you know, we are leaving them food. We are giving them, giving them this, um, you know, they could, they could, we don't know. They could have been picked up by another vessel or something right. going on here. Uh, I'd like to think. 
there is the bad version where despite the trillium D that was given to them in their hold that they hit a spatial anomaly and, you know, were gone. And, you know, that's a, that's a realist that would have made them the real sacrifice in this. But again, like Coventry, it was something that Archer was even prepared for. And I probably did argue and, and was completely shut down speaking, speaking of controversial that, you know, that we know that they didn't make it, that something had happened to their ship. Um, but that was that was one step farther than anybody. Okay, to go. so that that kind of gets us to it because like listener Greg Mullenby and many many others were wanting to know if you had any ideas for like what could have happened in season four or season or season five. They were thinking if if we saw season four, what if something happened in season five? So for warp five ninety warp five ninety one, we actually had a writers room episode where uh, a Dennis Costello, he's a listener and also a guest on Warp 5, actually had an idea that the Illyrians, man, yes, yes. Captain Sun, that his son actually arrives on Earth during season five to testify against Archer for the death of his father. And then... I love it. Actually, I was thinking, I was just thinking a straight revenge plot. Um, And at this point, maybe we can make it the daughter and not a son. But yes, there would be, there would be, it would be a great story on the repercussions of this. Absolutely. And some kind of reckoning, you would even call it the reckoning um, (laughs) in this. And, you know, perhaps the most critical uh, person uh, of of what Archer did uh, to Paul, maybe, would be the one who would have to save him in this or save him from himself. You know, there's also the PTSD or slash, you know, addicted Archer. You could also have season five where he's gone off the deep end because of this and to Paul with some Vulcan empathy for what that is, uh, helps him through right. it. Excellent. Well, right on. Thank you so much, Phyllis. Is there anything else that you want to talk about the episode before we uh, finish up here? Any final thoughts you have on the episode? I'd say that I am really proud of uh, this episode in the performances, in the production value, in the moral ambiguities and questions that it raises in a sense of real sacrifice and tough decision-making that, that to me uh, not only makes for good drama, but again, adds that realistic drama, realistic emotional sense to uh, a science fiction story. And I, and I think that at its best, science fiction has great characters who have these flaws and these dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, I've got one last completely untrek-related Uh-oh. question for you before Uh-oh. we let you go. Here we go. <laughs> so, Uh-oh. It's nothing bad. So we're recording this on December 6th. And we just got the news like three hours ago that CBS has greenlit the new Twilight Zone show. You excited? Very, absolutely. I, I know. I know one of the guys who's been developing it. So I've been. I've known about it for a while. Um, I, and actually, the two uh, the two series that I watched as, in reruns that that made me want to be a science fiction writer and made me a science fiction geek was the original series and the Twilight Zone. Nice. Um, and I will also add that my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time is Planet of the Apes, oh. credited to Rod Serling. So I am 
I'm completely on board with the caveat that, you know, Rod Sterling is no longer with us. And those are big shoes to fill. And it's been tried before. So, you know, fingers crossed that, uh, you know, with Black Mirror in the world and, yes. and a real dedication to this, um, that we'll have something worthy of the Rod Sterling legacy. Well yeah, I'm so stoked. I'm very stoked. Right on. Well, where can our listeners find you and follow you on social media? And are there any other projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to let them know about? Terrific. I am at, I'm on Twitter at Philly, P-H-Y-L-L-Y strong. Um, And I am actually, I have, I'm working on and and have out there a terrific, I think I may have mentioned it before, but it's, it's still out around. I have a great, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Robber versus Robber Baron story that's both started life as a feature with, and there's thoughts of making it a limited TV series and there's also a pilot version and uh, it's a great, great script and while I'm trying to find that one producer who will fall in love with it, uh, it's also generating some heat and I am actually working, I wish I could tell you the pitch I'm working on right now, but it's one of those things where Details are being kept under wraps, but it is a, it does have kind of a monster feel to it, and uh, it's also got uh, a bit of a light procedural touch. So that is one of the things. And I'm also working on, uh, once again, another high-concept sci-fi thing uh, with some time travel involved. So... Is it the new Star Trek movie written by Quentin Tarantino? Or are you working on it with him? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Although I'm liking the, the trailers that are coming out right now for you know, trying to figure out what it might look like. Um, I will say that uh, I hope at one time when I talk to you that I can talk about the sort of new space exploration series that I would like to do, which would harken back much more to the original series in terms of the character dynamics. Um, but right now it's basically just, you know, a, a few lines of, a, of thought and stuff like that and a real passion to eventually make that a reality. Right. So thank you so much, Phyllis, for coming on to Warp 5 again. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. You're so welcome and enjoy. I'm so glad you liked this episode as much as I liked writing it. And good luck in uh, populating an entire, you know, season five for Enterprise. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. That was that was a really great, really great talk with Phyllis, right, Brandon? Oh, she's such an awesome guest. I love talking to her because she she clearly loves the work that she did on Enterprise, you know, and you know she did a lot of really great work. So it's it's fun to have her on. It's fun to have her on to talk about it. It's fun to to hear her remember things as she's talking about she's like and you know she said she's like oh i just thought of this you know and even years later she's she's you know finding new depths to her own work and stuff it's really good and you can really you can really hear the like her fan her fandom of star trek you know when she's talking about it because i mean she's um it's it was just uh just the the episode itself is just awesome i think i think it's really really good and some people might kind of you know, well, it doesn't really look like Star Trek, you know, it doesn't really look like TNG or it doesn't really look like things. But honestly, I mean, it looks like Deep Space Nine, like really good Deep Space Nine. It looks like really good Voyager. Uh, the original series didn't really have anything like that during the original series. But then you got into the original series movies 
and it got into this, you know, the serious, like the ship being damaged, the people being pushed to their limits, you know, that kind of thing. And I, um, man, I, boy, this, it fell in this part of the season. Like when we're watching this, you know, as in a, as a, as a series along, wow, it just damages something else. It's just something else. And I, and I never, it never really stood out to me. Like when I used to watch it just as a, like just as a fan and just watching it, it never really stood out to me as being like, wow, this is an amazing episode. I just thought the whole thing, the whole season three, just rolling along was just like she said, like a locomotive, but boy, when you take it out and you really lay this down, like the different scenes that you have, like we mentioned with the Archer and flocks and then with DePaul and trip and then trip and Archer, man, there's just great character uh, drama and tension in it. Yeah. Well, that scene with flocks, especially, but like what you're saying there, where it's, it's, it comes off as such a high episode as well with Azadi prime, you know, which has such a strong battle at the end of the episode. And I've said many times, like, I love that shot at the end of Azadi Prime when the Enterprise is just spiraling right. off completely and totally almost destroyed. Like, you know, yeah, we love that ship, but it's such a great shot and it's so right. powerful. And there's like six episodes left in the season. What right. are they going to do? You know, so I just, I love that shot so much because it's like, what's going to happen next? And then to have them follow up with this episode is is outstanding because yeah we don't see our captains go dark right until well until Lorca now right. on Discovery but uh you know up until this point we hadn't really seen it I mean yeah we got the actions of Cisco in uh in the pale moonlight but it's not something that happens frequently our our, our captains are supposed to be the the good people and to have to make that choice between two evils two terrible decisions the paragon like, oh. of virtue I always pull that from the original series episode you know the mud. I don't even know what right. a paragon is. So yes, uh, talking to <laughs> Phyllis Strong about damage is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. And stay tuned afterwards because we got an announcement. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Exactly. I mean, like Arsenal of Freedom, like there's plot A, plot B, and plot C, if you look at it. I mean, this episode really has a lot going because when I think of Arsenal of Freedom... I don't think of it as a Geordi episode, but yet we've just mentioned two really important uh, moments with Geordi and him taking command and, you know, building his character. So it's, it's a great episode. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. I mean, it's, you know, there's a scene with a bear and Leonardo DiCaprio and, you know, whatever. I, as I understand it, it's not a pleasant scene. They're not high five each other. It's pretty intense, you know. It, yeah. I wouldn't say it's unbearable, ah. but it's pretty intense. Waka waka. <laughs> anyway, the six oh two club. For me, it, first of all, only being the second Star Wars book I've ever read, um, I like the difference of having a series of short stories and not just one novel by one author, like the Claudia Gray book that I read, uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Okay, so I'm reading this really great book that I recommend. It's The Ultimate Star Trek and Philosophy, The Search for Socrates. Um, it's it's a collection of stories from all different authors, um, and it's it's been on my bookshelf for a year. 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And while you're there, please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've still got you covered. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can always go to our website and download the MP3 file or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. Uh, One of the best places to go is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L in the search field on Facebook and join in on the fun. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And if you'd like to send us a voice transmission, just go to SpeakPipe.com slash TrekFM, record your message, and Brandon Shea will add it to a future episode. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5, and that comes right to us. And if you like hearing what you're, you hear here on the network, on Trek FM and on Warp 5, you can help us keep this all coming to you by visiting patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Uh you can donate as little as a dollar and get in on the being a patron and helping out our network. You can jump up to $5, get access to the patron zone. You can get it up to $10 to, to access the round table. You can go to, or is it $15? 15, 15 for, for the, the round table. table. So step that up to 15. You get onto the round table. You actually get to try your hand at podcasting. And if you go all the way up to $25, you can be an associate producer, just like, we have our co-associate producers for Warp 5 here. We have Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Oser, and Mark Flessa. Thank you so much for being co-associate producers of Warp 5. And do we do we have any new ones, Brandon? It seems like we're always picking up new co-associate producers. We also have Joel Saltzman. But, well, you do always forget yourself. I mean, you are you you, you still haven't removed <laughs> it from it. You well, know. I've, I've always been there, but, you know. That you know, we just we just add on names all the time. So if you want to join the Warp Five team, just go to Patreon.com/slash/TrekFM and get the details. Also, I like to thank Tony Robinson for creating the very cool show art for the shows, and Brandon Shea for editing and publishing Warp Five. So thank you so much, guys. You are very welcome, my friend. So Brandon, we have we've had Phyllis on twice now. You pull down these great guests you're you do such a great job with warp five here and finding uh these neat guests and the neat topics and everything so thank you so much for getting that done for us here oh you're welcome it's always fun to have her have guests on and have phyllis on and any of the writers if you're listening give me a call and give me an email send me a dm on on twitter or PM me on Facebook or whatever alphabet soup it is to get in touch with me. You can just feel free to do that, and we'd love to have you on. Sure. Anybody. We love talking Enterprise, so. Sure. Yeah. Any And, and I just kind of – I just wish that we would have had Warp 5 
like when it was actually on kind of like we have with uh, discovery now, you know, that would, yeah. that could, that would have been so neat while everything's really, really super hot, you know, to be having discussions, but it's still great to bring back the memories and like to just to flesh it out. It's really awesome. So Brandon, I just sent an email to the real Paul Stamets, who's the mushroom guy. Oh yes. To try and see if I can get him on as an interview on the edge. So oh, okay. I'm just cool. waiting to hear back from him right now, but, uh, that's a email sent and they, they got back to me saying that they'll, they'll, they've run it past their teams and, and they'll let me know their legal teams and whatnot. Because okay. I guess he's got a big company and everything, right? So, All right. You know. So fingers crossed on that. So Brandon, if our listeners would like to contact you to talk about a little bit more damage, uh, how could they reach you? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. Uh, you can find me here on the network hosting The Edge with Amy and Mike. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock Podcast, which I host with my friends Chris and Tom. And Floyd, before you give us your contact information, why don't you tell us the news? Well, the the news it's it's kind of a sad sad news. I've been have been issued new orders from Starfleet here, and I'm actually going to be. Uh, Moving on from the the chair here, I'm going to be moving on from my hosting duties. Uh, my my life situation has has changed dramatically uh, in the past few weeks, and I was thought I was going to be able to keep it going plus this other thing, but I'm actually having to cut a lot of things out so to try to fit my family's schedule and my life schedule right now. So I really, I really appreciate the listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Christopher Jones, for the opportunity to uh, come on to the Trek FM network. And uh, it seems like I've been doing this for a lot longer because I've been a listener for several, lot, many, many years. Um, I've been, uh, this has been a great two years that I've been on Warp 5 and been a host. Um, thank you so much, Jeffrey for Harlan, for coming in and being a co-host that first year. Thank you so much. Uh, to Brandon for stepping in, man, and helping me out this past year. Your editing and just keeping keeping the show afloat. You've been, you've done such a great job, and I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad that you invited me on, and I'm glad that it worked out because you know when I started with you, I came on for the commentary for uh, Future Tense, right? And you know, and you know, Enterprise was not my favorite show at the time, right? It was right. it was probably my least favorite. Star Trek show when I when I started guesting on with you but I mean doing these episodes with you and finding these you know behind the scenes talents and whatnot has really appreciated or really amplified my appreciation for the show so I, I thank you for inviting me on as a co-host and it's been a lot of fun and you know I you know I mean I'm my original reaction was like a oh, flight's going I don't know if I want to do this anymore and so like I my immediate reaction was like I might want to leave too but you know I slept on it and I thought about it and I'm like you know I'm, I'm having too much fun right now and I, I, I don't want to leave so um, we're actually going to have two new co-hosts starting with our next episode um, so joining us next week uh, or sorry two weeks from now I guess it is uh, we'll be doing the episode on The Wages of Fear which is a French film as a part of our, our movie night and Mike Schindler will be joining us as a guest but we'll also be welcoming my uh, my two new co-hosts who you guys have heard on the show before uh, we'll be having Patrick Devlin who's also co-host of The Briar Patch uh, he's been on several of our episodes here 
for our retrospective for season three. And back in March of this year, he joined me for a couple of special episodes when I just I wanted to test the waters and see if I could get a weekly podcast out for you guys. So we released an episode every week in the month of March, but then I'm like, oh, it's just too much. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> so Patrick's been on about, uh, I don't know, five or six episodes of Warp 5 already. And Brandy Jacola is also going to be our, our co-host next week. And she's on Live from the Edge. And she was on our recent episode where we did the essential episodes from Season 1 of Enterprise. Uh, so it'll be an, a little bit of a different dynamic uh, going to three hosts. But I think it'll be fun. And I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting and intriguing. And I look forward to it. But uh, again, I just got to thank you, Floyd, for inviting me onto the show and then asking me to to be a co-host with you. I, I've loved it. It's been a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm going to miss podcasting podcasting with you i think we had a really good feng shui going on yeah well i'm i i sure you know you're welcome on uh coming on because i'm telling you folks if it hadn't have been for brandon my goodness i i could have act, I could have have received my transfer order sooner so <laughs> that that i i told i tell brandon that every month those transfer orders would have been forged though <laughs> yeah well but yeah but i tell brandon that every single month like like you've you've really really helped carry the show on on this past year so thank you so much and least last but not least thank you so much listeners thank you so much for your support of warp 5 and just for uh letting your enterprise fan flags fly you know that um, it really, it really helps us uh, to not just be talking into void and actually have you know listeners that also enjoy the show. But it also, just like we just had Phyllis Strong on, she is so impressed that Enterprise still has a following and has picked up a following, and just from our following from Warp Five. So thank you so much, listeners. So this is uh, Dorsey signing off here. Boomers, thank you for listening, and join us again next time for another episode of Warp Five. I just can't wait till we get the podcast where Riker goes to the holodeck and does the final episode with Floyd. That'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>